2: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, December 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, $1,000 hazard pay bonuses for state law enforcement who've worked during the COVID-19 pandemic. Then, a Jackson-based credit union receives millions as part of a federal program aimed at increasing access to capital in minority communities and how COVID has affected the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State law enforcement officers are receiving a $1,000 bonus by the end of the year as hazard pay. As MPB's Kobe Vance reports,
0: officials say
2: this is a token of appreciation for their work throughout the pandemic.
0: Around 1,750 state law enforcement officers are receiving this one-time pay bonus for their work amid the coronavirus pandemic. The payments will come from federal CARES Act funding through the governor's office. Trooper Craig James with the Mississippi Highway Patrol says he's grateful to have this extra bonus to get through the holidays.
3: It's very humbling that the governor would have thought about us this time of year to give us this money to help kind of offset some of the costs that come with the holiday season. It will help out tremendously. My wife has been picking up extra shifts. Maybe she can knock that back a little bit with this money.
0: Trooper James says despite the pandemic, he has continued to do his job as normal, aside from having to wear a mask to prevent coronavirus transmission. Public Safety Commissioner Sean Tindall says around 50 law enforcement officers statewide have died from the coronavirus since the beginning of the pandemic nearly two years ago. He says their sacrifices will not be forgotten, and he hopes the death benefits being received by their families will be extended.
3: When this COVID started coming out and there were so many unknown variables, they answered the call each and every day because it's not a job that sleeps. It's not a job that can work remotely. They show up and they put it on the line, and a lot of them have made the ultimate sacrifice. So I I can tell you in talking with law enforcement officers from across the state, it weighs not only on them, but their family, and and it's been a very difficult and trying time.
0: The governor says these benefits will cost around $2.4 million, and the state will cover the cost of fringe benefits to ensure each officer receives the full $1,000 bonus. The hazard pay should be distributed to officers before the end of the year. Kobe Vance, MPB News.
2: Coming up, a Jackson-based credit union receives millions as part of a federal program aimed at increasing access to capital in minority communities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor, from fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.
2: This is the Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Jackson-based Hope Credit Union is set to receive a check for nearly $100 million from the U.S. Treasury. The fund's comments, part of a federal program aimed at boosting access to capital in historically underserved American communities. Bill Bynum is Hope's CEO. He speaks with our Michael Guidry. At
5: the end of last year, Congress uh, appropriated billion to uh, provide capital to community development financial institution depositories, uh, CDFIs, um, uh, as they're known, uh, and also to minority depository institutions to help communities that were disproportionately affected by the pandemic and economic crisis. Um, I suspect that um, you heard and, and we've certainly seen in our region how small businesses and low-income communities, rural communities, communities of color uh, often have a hard time accessing uh, resources in normal times, and, and the economic crisis made that much more difficult. So Congress appropriated these funds to make available to um, to CDFIs and minority depositories that have a much stronger track record of serving uh, lower income, um, economically distressed communities and communities of color. And so we applied for those funds over the past year, and we were very excited to to be successful in being named one of the recipients. I think there were about 100. Seventy-five or more are recipients that have divided eight eight points, uh, dividing eight point seven billion dollars.
4: How can this program, this emergency capital investment program that Hope Credit Union, Hope Enterprises, is, is a part of, how do you see uh, both its immediate impact and in its and in its long-term impact? Because uh, I know you know these businesses need some immediate impact, or, or business owners need some some immediate relief, but this program is designed to to do more than that. So, what are both the estimated short-term and long-term effects of this program?
5: Michael, unfortunately, um, there are, are people in communities in and in, in across the country, but particularly here at the Deep South, that have had a much more difficult time accessing basic financial services. Uh, here in Mississippi, only 17% of all mortgages go to Black homeowners, and this is a state with almost 40% Black residents. So the traditional banking system has gaps; it just does not serve everyone adequately. On the other hand, you know, Hope 88% of Hope's mortgages go to low-income people, to women, to people of color, and 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 so we are much more laser-focused on addressing communities where the need is greatest. Um, we started in the Delta 27 years ago and have uh, continued um, over the years um, to um, to fill gaps in the financial system here in Mississippi and Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, and Tennessee. After the financial crisis, you know, we, you know, in a normal year, we make about 50 business loans. We made Five thousand paycheck protection loans. Uh, many of those to um, businesses, small mom and pop businesses that provide critical service and jobs in struggling communities. Um, that and many of those businesses had gone to banks, but didn't even get a call back. So um, we, we exist to fill gaps in the financial system, and the but uh, we are we are uh, significantly. Undercapitalized compared to traditional banks and credit unions, and so this injection of capital by Congress helps to um, put us in a position to deepen our impact. Um, you know, we, we we are in you know for example we are in Itabina we we have only we we are the only financial institution in Itabina, um, and if we had every deposit in Itabina, that would be only $1.2, $1.3 million. That's hardly enough to finance the businesses, the homes, and provide basic banking services in those communities. And so what this capital will do is to help us inject more um, resources into places like Itabina and Moorhead and Drew, and, and, and again, it, it's, it, it'll, it'll be a it'll be a, a game changer for those communities, and for our ability to help those communities.
4: And you've talked a lot about how this program and what you do uh, is is more laser laser focused, and that laser focus comes out of a necessity to close these gaps. Even if this program is able to do that, what do what needs to happen in the in the bigger picture to to ensure that once those gaps are closed. Uh, that they 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 stay closed in perp- uh, perpetuity and, and not kind of regress back to the problem that you're that you're currently addressing.
5: I'm I'm glad that Congress saw that it's it's appropriate to address um, disparities in the financial system by uh, capitalizing organizations like Hope. Uh, I, I trust that. This will not be the only way that Congress works and, and 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 the administration works to address um equity and inclusion in the economy um but again i i, I we we are committed to doing everything that we can to make sure that everyone regardless of where they where they live um their race or gender has access to the tools they need to support their families and their communities. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, again, I, I, I think the evidence um, our, of our work speaks for itself, and I think that's part of what helped and convinced Congress to make um, the investment that they did. And I hope that will continue in the future.
2: Bill Bynum is CEO of Hope Credit Union. Coming up, most prisons shut down visitations right away when the pandemic began. In Alabama, people weren't able to visit their incarcerated loved ones for 20 months. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As family and friends gather for the holiday season, most incarcerated people in the Gulf States haven't seen their loved ones in person since the pandemic hit last year. More than 24,000 people are incarcerated in Alabama, and it was one of the last states to allow prison visitation again. Excuse me. The Gulf States newsroom's Brittany Brown reports on how these months apart have affected incarcerated people and their loved ones.
1: Virginia McDaniel's favorite picture is one of her and her husband. She's wearing a black shirt. He's in all-white. He has his arm around her, and she's leaning into him. They're both beaming.
2: When I look at this photo, the first thing I see is his eyes and his smile. I see happiness right there.
1: Virginia keeps this photo of her and her husband, Kenneth McDaniel, clipped to a lamp on her nightstand.
2: I look at this when I wake up and when I go to bed.
1: The photo was taken during a prison visit, but it looks like it could be anywhere. The only clue is the small stitching of his Department of Corrections number on his lapel. Kenneth is incarcerated at the Easterling Correctional Facility in southeast Alabama. Virginia lives in Dothan, just one hour south. Before the pandemic, she said she'd make the trip to visit him every Sunday for five years.
2: You get to feel that happiness for three hours that we got to visit.
1: But last year, when prisons across the country became hotspots for COVID-19, most state prison systems in the U.S. stopped in-person visitation. And like many other Alabama residents, Virginia was not allowed to visit her husband for 20 months straight. They only communicated by phone and video.
2: When you die, you're gone. You don't get to see him. Sometimes that's what it feels like.
1: Like, he's dead, but he ain't dead. (laughs) Kenneth has been in prison since 2008. He's serving a 100 year sentence for a 2006 car accident that killed three of his passengers. He and Virginia met not too long after the accident and married in 2018 in the prison.
4: But he writes,
2: Being away from my wife has been hard already. But the last
1: Virginia is reading from a letter Kenneth recently sent her about the toll this has taken on him.
2: I've been doing this for 14 years, and I will say that the last couple of years without our physical visit has disheartened my way of looking at
1: life. Studies show that prison visitation can have a positive effect on behavior and decrease chances of recidivism. When Alabama finally reinstated visitation in December, it was one of the last states in the country to do so. Louisiana prisons allowed it in October. Mississippi prisons in November. Alabama still has several tight restrictions in place. During visits, only two people can be there at a time for just one hour. A plexiglass barrier separates the prisoner from their visitors, and they aren't allowed to touch. And what Alabama is doing does not actually make sense. That's Laura Ceremi, whose best friend is in prison in Alabama. Laura also produces a podcast about wrongful convictions in the South. She's hoping Alabama will reconsider the visitation policy. Look at what Commissioner Kane is doing in Mississippi. It's common sense and it makes sense to minimize the risk of COVID. Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Burl Kane says he wanted their visitation policy to align with what's happening on the outside. In prisons there and in Louisiana, masking is required, but touching is allowed and visitors can stay longer. And Kane says the state health department supports the policy.
5: They feel like it's safe as long as we use the mask, social distance, do the temperatures. People hadn't seen their children
3: in a long time, hadn't seen their relatives, so why not?
1: The Alabama Department of Corrections says they plan to reconsider their policy when state officials deem it safe. I miss his touch. Virginia McDaniel finally got to see her husband for the first time in two years on December 12th. After making the hour-long drive to the prison, she says the hardest part was sitting across from him and not being able to hug him. But she'll still be making the trip as often as she can.
2: I married him because I love him. And I'm going to be here till the end.
1: <laughs> For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Brittany Brown. The Gulf States Newsroom
2: is a partnership among WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. Coming up, how COVID has affected the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today. At MPBOnline.org and thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. On yesterday's show, We heard from John Hendricks, who's director of economic development for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. He told us about an inventive new source of revenue for the Choctaws. The tribe is leveraging its expansive forested lands to sell carbon credits to private companies that want to claim carbon neutral status.
3: We're actually committing to maintain our forests at or above our current base inventory stock. So we're going to let the trees I mean, grow more trees and grow them For longer periods, and those trees in turn capture greenhouse gases and sequester them, so carbon sequestration.
2: After a brutal 18 months, the tribal economy is well in need of a creative jolt. John Hendricks joins us again to share how the pandemic affected life for the band of Choctaw
3: Indians. The tribe is a government, so the the Mississippi Choctaws as a government is basically a self-contained community and so it runs the school system and the police department and the health care system and the tribal government and as well as the businesses that are employing the community so it, it is a very comprehensive cohesive community and when the pandemic hit it hit the choctaw community especially hard as a population so all things were impacted the tribe had the school system that um, was impacted and needed to be closed um, which made everyone realize the importance of having broadband access, a need to ramp up all of the uh, uh, social services and food distribution and elder care systems, while you've got your employees who are being asked to, to shelter in place. So all the all communities and governments face the, the same situation. I would say Choctaw faced it especially tough. It's a rural community. There's eight separate tribal. Uh, communities scattered out about 90 miles apart, so it's just logistically challenging. But I, I would say that we we have we've adapted, we've innovated, we've gotten through um, a lot of challenging situations, and and again, we now have plans to to um, address a lot of root problems. the overcrowding situation, um, we've got the plan to build 100 homes. The the need for broadband, we've got plans to deploy broadband to all tribal houses. Um, hopefully by this time next year. Um, We've got the health center um, has responded and they've adapted and we're looking at lots of initiatives to improve the the public health situation and offer telehealth services to the community, the tribal schools. um, We've done a lot of improvements to facilities and we're in the process of planning a new um, um, high school that's going to replace one that's It was built back in the 60s, just um, inadequate for today's needs. So it it exposed a lot of um, root problems that needed to be addressed, like a lot of communities faced. But I would say that we've got good plans in place to to, um, start addressing these in in a very timely manner.
2: What of the problems will be at the top of the list, you think?
3: Uh, Overcrowded housing is is at the top of the list. So the, the plan to build new affordable housing units in the community. Um, number two would be broadband access. So uh, again, you can't do telehealth. You can't do distance learning. You can't do homeschooling without the household having broadband access. So, so we're solving that. Um, the need to have up-to-date um, facilities for middle school and high school is very critical. And so there's plans being put to, to develop a new middle school and high school with with um, adequate air handling systems and not overcrowded classrooms. Um, those would be the, the top three, and then just general infrastructure, um, roads and water and wastewater treatment facilities, and then, again, economic diversification. We're, we're, we're actively looking for more projects like the carbon offset project um, to find more ways to diversify our, our our economy. Um, so
2: That's what I was going to ask you about, because you have the casinos, but during the pandemic, did you shut down?
3: We did. They were shut down for a few months. Yes. Okay.
2: And so they were shut down. How does that impact the Choctaws going through that?
3: Economically, well, right. again, it, it, uh, like a lot of us have lessons learned after after the COVID pandemic, um, one of them is the need to, to have financial and economic diversification. So, uh, the, the casino um, is the largest business that we own and operate. We have three casinos, and it's our largest employer for our, the businesses that we own and operate. So, when those have to close for a few months, you you it it, it hurts. So you realize that you need. Um, more diverse things that don't depend on on tourism and and things like that so again that was a a big driver for us to look at opportunities like the carbon offset market and we're looking at several other uh, potential ventures as well so you end up with a more diverse economy and and less reliant on just a single industry
2: is there anything that i didn't ask you that you'd like to share
3: well, I guess the uh, the other thing that we're focused on that we haven't talked about is is um, workforce development. So, as I, as I mentioned, the tribe runs its own um, school system, K through twelve plus early childhood um, and Head Start programs, and there's just a, um, an ongoing need to continually train the, the the workforce. So, workforce development starts in the school system, but we're looking we're we're adding things around IT and cybersecurity training to high school curriculum and as well as existing employees we're doing more training around technical and vocational training for HVAC technicians and electricians and and plumbers and industrial controls um so it's a, a i guess that that's the last piece to our strategy that we haven't discussed but really it's an important piece to have the community members ready for the the jobs that are here now and in high demand and the jobs that we think will be around um, for the next five to 10 years. So that's another important part of what we're up to.
2: John Hendricks, Director of Economic Development, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you for the interview, and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.